If you have your Bible, turn with me to 2 Timothy. For the next few weeks, we're going to be in the book of 2 Timothy. We've been talking about the concept of the resurrection, and where we've sort of landed is that what we believe about the future enables us to endure in the present. And if you were with us last week, you know we talked about uh, and asked the question, what is it that we believe as Christians about the future that enables us to endure at the present time? And today we'll have a little different focus. Um, We will say if it's true that what we believe about the future enables us to endure in the present, we're going to ask the question, endure what? What is it that we endure? Do we just endure life in a broken world? Well, I suppose that's part of what the Christian hope offers, that we can endure the broken world at the present time, but that's really just surviving. God has more for you than just surviving in a broken world. God has a purpose for your life. There's a reason why he hasn't just taken us on to heaven. He has left us here on the earth, even though we are his children, because he has work for us to do. And I want to show you that work, what it is that we are to endure in in the present day. And I want to show you the big picture, sort of my back of the napkin sketch of what it looks like. And then I want to show you what it is that God has or his purpose for us in the book of 2 Timothy. So let's do that together. First, my sort of back of the napkin, this is our mission in action. And if you look over there on the left side, where we live at the current time, the context we live in, we have learned that the uh, all of biblical history and indeed all of human history can be summarized in the categories of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Uh, creation, God created all things good. The fall occurred, and so things are broken and messed up because we have not lived life the way God designed it to be lived. Redemption, that God remains committed to his creation and came in the person and work of his son to make all things right. And restoration, a day is coming when God will make all things new. So at the present time, we live after redemption, after Jesus has come, but before restoration, before God makes all things new. So you'll see the summary there. The kingdom of God is now breaking into the kingdom of this world. That's what's going on at the present time. That's the context in which we live. That if you follow that that arrow at the top around to who we are, that's where we live. Who are we? We are the church. The church is not a building. It is a people. And this group of people that God has gathered for himself is God's means for his kingdom to break into this world. When Jesus was here on earth, God's kingdom had come and he was pushing back the effects of the fall and brokenness as he uh, walked around and talked and as he uh, conducted his earthly ministry. And now we are the literal hands and feet of Jesus as his kingdom breaks into the world as God's people uh, minister and live and move and have our being in this world. So what exactly do we do if you keep following around there to the right on that right side? of the page, what we do is we gather and scatter. You see those two words with the arrows back and forth, and that's really a pattern that we saw in the Acts sermon series that I preached this past fall, that there's this pattern of gathering and scattering, and the church does different things in those contexts. So let's look at what do we do when we gather? 
Well, we gather under biblical leadership, which was the sermon series in January. You can go back and listen to those sermons. We gather under biblical leadership for worship, which we talked about in March. And you're welcome to go back and listen to those sermons. We gather for worship, teaching, and fellowship. And that word fellowship might be a little broader. Uh, That Greek word koinonia is more rich than our English word fellowship. And you can go back and listen to the sermon on Acts 2.42 to hear us talking about it. So we gather for those things. And as we do that, we're filled with God's Spirit and we're equipped to scatter. And what is it that we do when we scatter? If you follow along to the middle of the page there at the bottom, we scatter for multiplication and dominion. That's Genesis 1.28 language. I preached a sermon on that February the 2nd. I'd love for you to go back and listen to that to understand these concepts more. Uh, But basically, multiplication just comes from where God says that we're to be fruitful and multiply images of God. So in a fallen world, that involves evangelism and discipleship, which we're going to talk about this morning from 2 Timothy. And then the dominion is just bringing all areas of life under the rule and reign of Christ. And so as there are more followers of Jesus who are living the way he designed us to live, in that way, you see, that's how the kingdom of God breaks into the kingdom of this world. And we're back to where we started as we look at our mission in action. That's the big picture. Uh, That's the back of the napkin sketch of our mission. That's our purpose, why we're still here, the work God has for us to do. And I also want you to see it in the book of 2 Timothy, which is why we'll be here for the next few weeks. So let me show it to you in 2 Timothy. Before I read the first few verses of this book, let me give you some context. Uh, The uh, Apostle Paul has been quarantined, we might say. He's actually in prison in Rome. That's a pretty severe quarantine. Uh, But persecution of Christians has started by the Emperor Nero, you might remember from your world history. So we're about, that persecution started in 64 AD. So we're right there in the mid-60s. The Apostle Paul is in jail and he will soon be executed. And Paul knows that he has come to the end of his life. And this letter that we have that we're reading is a letter that he wrote to Timothy and the church at Ephesus. And it's the last thing that we have that the Apostle Paul wrote. And as he faces death, this letter is invested with great importance. Because in the solitude of that quarantine of being in prison, he has the opportunity to think about what's most important about what priorities we should have. When Paul writes this, he knows he will never come out of the quarantine that he's in. But Timothy and the church at Ephesus will. What would he have them focus on? What priorities should they have? What should they do with this time they have left before God takes them on to heaven? Be listening for that as I read 2 Timothy chapter 1. Hear now God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. 
I have reminded, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan the flame, the gift of the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What you heard from me... Keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Pray with me if you will. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving this letter of Paul, the last thing we have that he wrote. And I pray that just as he was conveying to Timothy and the church at Ephesus what their priorities should be, what is most important in this world where you have us until you take us on to glory, that just as he shared that with them, Father, I pray that you would give direction to our church, that you would show us the purpose of our lives, that you would show us the work you have for us to do until you take us on to heaven. And Father, I ask that you would be willing to do this even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I recently was talking to our leadership, and I said to them, you know, God has given us a great gift. It is rare that as a church leadership you ever get to just stop all the programs that you are doing, and you have the opportunity to reevaluate them, and then you have an opportunity not just to put things back in place the way that they were before, but God has given us an opportunity to dream about what could be, to dream about how we can be better as a church, how we can be more what God is calling us to be in this place. And I want you to know that's what we're doing as a leadership. As we look forward to coming back together, we are searching the scripture and we're praying that God would show us what he would have us to do. Please pray for us in that. And I hope that you'll be excited by what you hear in 2 Timothy. And it's one of the reasons we'll be in this book for several weeks, so that we can discern what it is that God has for us as a church and for you as an individual. As I look here at chapter 1, I see at least three things that God has for us. And I want to look at those with you today. First, the first thing I would say is evangelism. We tell people about our Lord. You see that in verse 8. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 
So the first thing God calls us to do is to testify about the Lord, to tell people about Jesus. And what is it that we're supposed to tell? Well, we're supposed to tell the good news of the kingdom that is breaking into this world that we talked about earlier. Paul mentions the gospel several times here. And I want us to be clear on what the gospel is. The good news of the gospel Paul outlines right here in the following verses. Look what he says there in verse 9. He says, we do this by the power of God who has saved us. Well, of course, that begs the question, saved us from what? We asked the question at the beginning, just saved us from a broken world? Well, not really. We still face the brokenness of this world. Does he save us from our own flesh? Yes, to some extent. We're still tempted by our own flesh and the devil, and to some extent we are delivered, but we still feel those temptations and the fiery darts of the evil one, Ephesians 6 tells us. And so what God has really saved us from is the punishment for our sin, we sang about it, and God will hold me fast, that, that we have, we've been uh, saved from the justice of God. You see, we have all fallen short of the glory of God, and the Bible tells us that the wages of falling short is death, that that's what we deserve, and that's what entered the world when we disobeyed God. And a holy and just God must punish sin, or he is not holy and just. We love that idea when we think of all the bad people out there. In fact, that's one of the things that helps us to endure, knowing that one day God will make all things right and all the oppressors will be brought to justice and everyone who is doing wrong will receive justice and that God's going to make all things right. And that is the hope that we have at the current time. But when we think about that, our hope diminishes when we realize that we fall short of God's standard. And if he's going to make all things right and bring wrongdoers to justice, then that includes us as well. Until we realize what verse 9 says, that God has saved us. You see, all sin is either paid for by Jesus on the cross or by the person who commits that sin. And so for those of us in Christ Jesus, the condemnation of God has been paid for, been absorbed by Christ on the cross so that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what God has saved us from. Verse 9 says, He saved us and called us to a holy life. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the Bible say that we're called to a holy life. Holiness has sort of gotten a bad rap in our day. It's really not in vogue anymore. We sort of think of Puritans or, or Pharisees when we think of a holy life. But understand that a holy life is nothing more than life as it was designed to be lived. God made all things. He knows how life is supposed to work, and he sets those things out in his word. And so a holy life is just living the way God designed us to live. It's the safe path. It's the way life works best. So don't be discouraged by this call to a holy life. We may say that God saves us just as we are. We don't have to clean ourselves up to come to him. But I think it's also accurate to say that though God saves us just as we are, God does not leave us just as we are. He calls us to live a holy life, which means we die more and more to our sin and we live more and more in a way that looks like Jesus. 
In theological terms, we may say there is no salvation without sanctification. That God justifies us. He declares us not guilty because Jesus has taken our punishment on the cross. He sanctifies us that we will more and more look like Jesus. And he glorifies us. That's what verse 10 talks about. Where it says that Jesus has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. is what we looked at the last few weeks in 1 Corinthians 15. That Jesus has been raised from the dead, never to die again. Which assures us that one day we will rise from the dead with, lot, with bodies that don't break down and bodies that don't, don't die any longer. And so that's the promise, that's the salvation, that's the good news of the gospel. And notice where it comes from. Verse 9 tells us explicitly, it does not come from us. Look what the scripture says. It says, God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose. God has saved us for a purpose. He has work for us to do. We're told right here, and we're saved for his purpose and his grace. Look what he says about that. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Do you hear what that was say, what that, this is saying? That before God created the world, he knew you and he knew me. God doesn't know us more now that we exist than he did before he made anything at all. God's always known all things. And so God knew you before he even made the stars or the planets. He knew you. And he set all things up so that they would fall into place, so that we would be adopted as his children. He set his love on us before he even made the earth, Ephesians 1 tells us. And that he pursues us and draws us to himself, brings us into this family for this purpose that he has for us. And it's all because of his grace that we do not deserve. That's the good news of the gospel. And so I guess the question for us is, do we tell people this good news? Are we talking about this? Verse 8 says that we shouldn't be ashamed to testify about our Lord and the gospel. You know, I'm concerned. We often lament and say the world's just going to hell in a handbasket. And I suppose if you watch the news for five or ten minutes, that would be the logical conclusion. The world is a difficult place. But do we tell people the good news about what our Lord has done? Are we willing to testify? Are we going to speak into the world what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do? Now, I want to be clear about what the calling is. We are to testify. That means we're to talk about what the Lord has done. It's not our job to convince people. It's not our job to cajole or to twist arms or to say it loud enough and to scream at people that they might believe it. It's God's job to convince people. But God uses people who are talking about what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do. And that's part of the calling that he has for us. Will you say something? Will you talk about what the Lord has done? That's what verse 8 calls us to do. 
Now, we seem to be hesitant to do this. I don't hear us talking about this outside of Christian circles, but who are people that God would have you talk about these things? But who are some folks that need to hear some people that God has put in your daily tra- Who are some people you might intentionally get to know so that you could have the opportunity to tell what the Lord has done? We are hesitant to do that. And I think it's because of this second thing that we're called to here in the text. The second thing is, is suffering. Do you see that also in verse 8? Paul says, Don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. Now, if the gospel is such good news, why would there be suffering in telling people good news? Well, if you've ever shared the gospel with someone before, then you know. People don't like to admit the gravity of their sin and guilt before a God who is holy and just, who punishes sin. We don't like to talk about it, and people don't really like to hear it. People prefer to hear and to think, well, you know, I'm not that bad, and God's really not that mad about it, and why can't he just grade on a curve, and I'm better than those people over there, and so maybe they'll get judged, but I do more good than bad, when that's not the standard at all. Verse 9 says, it's not based on anything that we do. We don't like to tell people the only way to be saved is by the finished work of Christ on the cross. We're ashamed sometimes to say that Jesus is the only way to God, that he's the only way that we can avoid paying for our sins ourselves. And when we do talk about it, there is suffering involved. People think that we're arrogant, that we know the way, that we think our way is the only way. And we do face suffering for that. And I would venture to say, if you're not suffering for the gospel, it's probably because you are not sharing the gospel. You're not talking about it. You're not being intentional in your relationships and looking for opportunities to talk about what the Lord has done and what he is doing and what he will do. Because when we share the gospel, we do end up suffering for the gospel. And those are the first two things we're called to do. But I see a third thing here in the text that we're called to, and it's what I would call discipleship. It's teaching other people how to follow Jesus more closely. You see it there in the text in verses 13 and 14. Look at it with me. Paul writes, What you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Do you hear what Paul is saying? In verse 1, he's identified himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, Jesus shared these things with me. I learned them from him. He's the one who taught me. And now I have entrusted you with these things. I have passed them on to you. And in verse 30, he says, What you heard from me, keep that as the pattern of sound teaching. Guard that deposit that I have entrusted to you. And you do that and you pass it on to other folks. The idea is that the way that the kingdom come, the way that the church thrives, is that each generation passes these truths down to the next. Like a relay race, we each have our part of the race that we run with the baton in our hands, and then at some point we hand the baton to another generation. And as we are faithful in our part of running the race, the church survives and the kingdom of God grows. 
Well, what is it that we teach people that we're supposed to make sure that they know? Well, Paul says in verse 13, what you heard from me, teach that to other people. It's the apostolic teaching. And certainly we can see how this would have come from Jesus Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18 through 20, the resurrected Christ tells us that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples, that's discipleship, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. So that teaching people to obey everything Jesus commanded, that's discipleship. And that's what was imparted to Paul. And that's what he is passing on to Timothy and instructing him to pass on to others. Notice what, how he describes it. He says that it's sound teaching. That's such an interesting word. When Jesus healed people in the gospel, this word is used that they were sick, but then they were made sound it's kind of the word for whole. They were made whole. You see, this teaching fixes what's broken. It's life as it was designed to be lived. It's what makes us whole. Or in verse 14, when it's called the good deposit, that word for good is literally beautiful. That it's a beautiful thing that has been entrusted to us. And I want you to see the beauty of this because Paul is not just concerned with the beauty of the content. He's not just concerned with what it is taught, but he's also concerned with how it is taught. There's a beauty in the way this is taught. And I want you to see that. You see him say in verse 13, what you've heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus that we pass these things along with faith and love. You know, I think many people are skeptical of the teaching of the Bible, not because of what is taught, but because of how we have taught it. I believe that in our attempt to keep or preserve or to guard and to not lose the gospel or to let it to be damaged or compromised in any way, as Christians, let's just be honest. We can be mean. We can be defensive. It can get ugly in the way that we guard the gospel. But if you have been hurt by the church, if you've been hurt by someone who is sharing what they call the gospel with you, please understand that that is not the beautiful pattern that is called for in the scripture. Paul tells us that we're to do this with faith and love in Christ Jesus, that it's people who are walking with him and abiding in him and are becoming more like him are the ones that, that should be engaged in this in a manner that is consistent with how Jesus would do it. And at the end of verse 14, Paul even says, you do this with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The Holy Spirit who produces the fruit in our lives of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. In verse 7, Paul says that's the spirit that we have, a spirit of power, and of love, and of self-discipline, of that self-control. So that's how it's supposed to be done. And we get a beautiful picture of it right here. And I really want you to see this picture because what we see here in this chapter is Paul discipling Timothy. 
And it is a beautiful thing. And I want you to see it before we end our time together today. I want you to see what it looks like. What does it look like to disciple one in Christ Jesus? To do so filled by the Spirit. Look at verse 3. Paul writes to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience as day and night I constantly remember you in my prayers. It's a beautiful thing. What if somebody that you really respected, that you looked up to, that's a little further down the road than you spiritually, told you, I am constantly praying for you? That's the beauty that's involved in this. Keep going. Look at verse 4. Paul says, Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. They like each other, they have a close relationship. When they parted, the last time they saw each other, Timothy cried. He didn't want to be away from Paul. Paul says, I long to see you and I'd be filled with joy if I was able to see you again because they like each other and they have this close relationship. That's what discipleship is supposed to look like according to the scripture. Look at verse 5. Paul says, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you. Paul knows Timothy's family. He knows his background. And perhaps this is nothing more than just his affection and affirmation of Timothy. And I do think those things are involved in discipleship, to show affection, to affirm his faith. I think all those things are appropriate. But I think maybe there's something more going on here. I think God has preserved something more than just the affirmation and affection that Paul has for Timothy. I believe that what we see here is Paul reaching out to Timothy, ministering to him in the place of his deepest hurt. Ministering to Timothy in that place Addressing those things that kept Timothy from being all that God has called him to be. You see, I think what Paul is saying here is this when he writes to Timothy. I think he's saying, Timothy, I believe your faith is real. It is genuine. It is authentic. It is the real thing. And I want you to know that even though this faith came from your mom and your grandmother and not your dad. I believe Paul saying, Timothy, I know your dad was never there for you in spiritual things. You can read in Acts 16 when Paul first meets Timothy, we're told explicitly that his mom was a believer, but his dad was not. And here is Timothy trying to learn to follow Jesus. He knows what it looks like for a mom and for a grandmother, but what does it look like to be a man who walks in the ways of God? Perhaps All of this is why he's encouraged not to be timid or ashamed. Maybe it all stems from this background. And Paul seems to be saying here, Timothy, you are not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God because of your family or because of your background. Paul is saying here, you have a real and a sincere and genuine faith. 
The Apostle Paul is looking at Timothy and he's saying, look, even though you learn these things from your mom and your grandmother, which would have been looked down on in this culture, there would have been shame involved, but that's how he learned these things. He's not a learned scholar like Paul was, learning from other rabbis and Pharisees. He learned these things from his his mom and his grandmother. And, And Paul is saying, Timothy... Your faith is the real thing, even though you learn this from your mom and your grandmother. I'm saying, an apostle of Christ Jesus is saying, Timothy, you are the real deal. And look how he refers to him in verse 2. Timothy, my true son. Paul is saying, Timothy, don't think that you don't have a dad, because you do. Your heavenly father has given me to you as a spiritual father. And even though you never had a dad to model this for you, he's saying, look, Timothy, I'm modeling for this for, this for you right now. If you want to know what it looks like to be a man who follows God in this day and at this time, look at me, Timothy. I'm showing you what it means to be a man. Look, it's very clear that's the, that's the pattern, right? In verse 8, he tells Timothy, don't be ashamed, testify, and suffer for the gospel. Then you read in verse 11, when, what does Paul say that he's been doing? I have testified, I've told you I've been a herald of the gospel, I have suffered for it, that's why I'm in jail, and I'm not ashamed. He's asking Timothy to do the very things that Paul has already been doing. He's been setting a model, an example, And how has Paul been able to do that? What's the secret to success? Paul, the spiritual dad, is passing this on to Timothy, his true son in the faith. And he says, look, son, he says it in verse 11, I can tell you why I'm able to not be ashamed, why I'm able to suffer, why I'm able to testify, because I know in whom I have believed. I know Jesus. And I know that he is able to keep these things, to guard these things. He has the power. Timothy, the way that you're a man of God is that you depend on the power of God. He says it in verse 8, right? Join me in suffering in the gospel by the power of God. He says it in verse 14, you guard the deposit by the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Timothy, that's what it looks like to be a man after God's own heart. Heart. I'm showing you now, Timothy, what it means. I want you to know, you are here for a reason. God has not taken us to heaven yet because he has work for us to do. And that work involves telling people about the Lord, which is going to involve some suffering. It's going to be hard. It involves discipleship, teaching people what it looks like to follow Jesus, being engaged in that process. And so as I close, I just want to mention a few things. I want to say something to the men of this church, to the men of any church. Let me just ask you this question. Do you know how many Timothys are out there who long to be spiritually fathered in the faith? Do you know how many men are timid? Maybe they cover it with a hard outer shell. Do you know how many men are ashamed of their past? Maybe because of their family or something that's happened in their background. Do you know how many men are not all that God has made them to be because of this background? 
What an opportunity we have as men to come alongside those who are not as far along in the faith and to be spiritual fathers, to tell them what the Lord has done, to be willing to suffer for it and to teach them in the faith, to come alongside them in this beautiful way that's outlined here. What an opportunity we have. I want to speak to the women of this church or of any church. Do you see the calling that you have to be a spiritual mom or spiritual grandmother that the faith that is in you may live on in many spiritual sons and daughters? I want you to hear what Paul says to Timothy later in this letter. Look in chapter 3, down at verse 14. Paul says to Timothy, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. He's referring to Timothy's mother and grandmother. Unless you think he's referring to Paul or someone else, look at the next verse, verse 15. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be Thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's the opportunity that you have as a woman of God. I've spoken with many of you and you tell me that quarantine is difficult, that you're frustrated in quarantine. Do you see the opportunity you have? That if you have little ones at home, even from infancy, to share the scripture with them so that they're wise unto salvation and, and ultimately are thoroughly equipped for every good work. And, and let's be clear, you don't have to be a biological mother in order to make this happen. This is something, just as with Paul and with Timothy, that we would, there would be many spiritual mothers and grandmothers with many spiritual sons and daughters. What a calling we have as a church to tell people about the Lord, to teach them how they are to become more like Him and to be willing to suffer as we do so. As any parent will tell you, it is hard, but it's worth it to see their first steps, to hear their first word, and as they grow up in the Lord, to see them go into the world thoroughly equipped for everything that God has for them. And as that happens from generation to generation, the church flourishes. We carry out our mission in action. And the kingdom of God comes more and more into this world. And God's will is done here as it is in heaven. Let's pray and ask him to do that in this generation and in this place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have a purpose for us. That we're not just here to live or survive. And I pray that you would help us with our purpose. You're so honest and tell us that this will be hard. I pray that you would help us to tell people about the Lord and what he has done and is doing and will do. That you would help us to invest the time and to be intentional about getting into people's lives in this beautiful way that you set out here. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be willing to do that here in this place, in us and through us, for your glory and for the good of your people. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.